0: Welcome to Innovative Legal Leadership, the podcast where you'll hear from the world's most innovative general counsel and their leadership teams for their insights into the running of a Fortune 500 in-house legal department. The challenges, the wins, the roadblocks, the journey to date, and most importantly, what lies ahead. Let's get into the show. Hello, listeners. In today's episode, I'm super excited to let you know that I'm speaking to Louise Pentland. Louise is currently the Executive Vice President, Chief Business Affairs Officer, and Chief Legal Counsel at PayPal and has held that position since 2015, just before PayPal spun off from eBay. What a sensational story Louise has. Right from the beginning, you know, uh, working class background no fancy school, no fancy university, starts at Nokia as like a second year lawyer when there's 300 lawyers in the team. And throughout her 16 year career makes an impact and gets to the position of the chief legal officer and holds that position for six years. There are so many fantastic aspects of the conversation with Louise. So many favourites. I don't know what to pick out, but a couple do stand out. One is the advice that the chairman at the time of Nokia gave to her about her next move and what she should be looking for. So I won't give the spoiler alert there. It's a really interesting insight. And also what Louise looks for when hiring people. We talk about innovation and resilience and her interpretation of that. It's a fascinating discussion. I absolutely had a ball of the time. I'm sure you're going to too. So in the usual way, sit back, chillax, and enjoy the show. Hi there, Louise, welcome to the show. It's fantastic to have you here.
1: Hi, Jim, thanks for having me.
0: Now, Louise, I'm going to launch in with a very high level overview of your stunning career. Couple of years as a law lecturer and then a 16-year career at Nokia, including six years as the Executive Vice President and Chief Legal Officer, and of course now in the last five or six years, Executive Vice President and Chief Business Affairs Officer and Chief Legal Officer at PayPal. Now before we do a bit of a deep dive there, your first love, not necessarily law, talk to me about your original passion to be a professional ballerina
1: yes i grew up in the theater world Um, that was how i spent my weekends and for me that was dance and so i did pretty good actually uh i i got accepted into prestigious ballet school but you know didn't really have a background in that and certainly not in my family and so it meant moving to scary london at the time and also i was a little put off by the fact that i was taller than some of the other girls and one of the instructors pointed out that you know that probably limited my ability to be prima ballerina which even at that young age, I, you know, I aspired to at least having a shot at being yep. the best. So, you know, that sort of and the unpredictability of that as a profession and that my desire for a steady income led me down the path of going to law school. So now it's just
0: a hobby. Well, it's, it's funny. It's been a theme in the last few interviews I've had. I had Vanessa Watson, assistant GC at MasterCard, started off in performing arts and, and professional performer. And I also had Anne Kepler. The GC at Prudential Financial, again, starting off in theatre, she joked that the first acting role that she got paid for was as an acting GC in one of her GC roles. So <laughs> it definitely seems to be a theme about performing arts and, and female general counsel. So let's do a bit, of, bit more of a deeper dive in your legal career. I'd love to learn a little bit about the journey and perhaps some of the influencing factors, Louise, that you know, turning points, crossroads...
1: Yeah, where would you like me to start?
0: <laughs> what about, let's start with Nokia. You had you a know, fantastic career there, 16 years, and of course it's made your way up to EVP and um, Chief Legal Officer. Let's talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, well, let, let me just tell you how I got there because... Yep. I had decided very early on after a stint in a law firm that was not for me. <laughs> yep. I like to be part of a team. I like to be part of a kind of a, a cohort that is pulling together, not competing with one another. And so I, I very quickly opted out of the law firm track. And uh, I, I, I went for my first in-house job actually was at Avon Cosmetics. Right. And so, and then I was, you know, very quickly headhunted for a couple of roles, actually. One was Grenada TV which I really wanted obviously given my theatre background and the other was Nokia which was you know, it was sort of you know, was 1997. So mobile phones are not exactly mainstream at this point in time. So in the end, you know, Nokia really wanted me to join them. And and I thought to myself, well, you know, telecoms is is really coming along. Maybe I could go become a telecoms expert and do that for a couple of years. And I thought, well, you know, that seems like a really smart decision. And I didn't really have anyone advising me at the time because I was like two years, you know, two, three years out of law school. And, you know, you still just find your feet yep. so I sort of jumped into Nokia with truly the premise of thinking that I would be there for two years probably three max and then 16 years later I was still there and it it was I, I joined at an entry-level legal position I don't actually think there was a, a, a more junior legal position wow. than the one I started at and I knew nothing let's be clear I knew absolutely nothing at that point because you know I'm two-year qualified lawyer and you know have dabbled in this and that but really not that much
0: and and give me a sense what's the size of the nokia legal team at that time can you recall
1: yeah it was probably 300 people at that time yeah so
0: you've joined as a two-year lawyer there are 300 people in nokia legal at the time yeah Well, you've got to tell me a little bit about that, you know, from that. What sets you apart over the years, (laughs) Louise, to make it to the the most senior legal position, having started as a second year with 300 odd lawyers in the team?
1: It's an interesting question, you know, in part, you know, and you asked as well, you know, did people help me? My first boss at, at, at Nokia was uh, a woman named Deborah Grimerson, who's just an incredible woman and is a general counsel in, in her own right. And, you know, she sort of took me under, my, under her wing and really taught me everything she knew about contracts and negotiations and was so generous. And we were a team of two, really. We were the UK legal team. right? And she was, you know, she had a wicked sense of humor um, she was from ireland and you know and we and it just made me feel very safe and secure and it was a really yep. great grounding in leadership and she was always advancing and and sort of you know pushing for me to kind of be considered even when i wasn't there in the room so you know in today's vernacular she would have been both a mentor and a sponsor for me
0: yep. at that early yep.
1: age it was also a company of it didn't matter how qualified you were if you had the learning agility and you were putting in the hard work and getting the results it was a performance-based culture that's what they valued and that was really extraordinary for me and my career trajectory because at every inflection point where i advanced there was somebody looking out for me somewhere along the way and for every opportunity i would have taken a polygraph to tell you that i wasn't ready And somebody thought I was and said, just do it anyway. And so this conviction that it's okay not to be ready and to even potentially fail while doing it and then have people support and pick you back up defined my career. And it was also why I stayed for as long as I did because Nokia kept reinventing itself every couple of years. So it was like a new company, but with the same awesome people, right? And so that was a lot of, you know, I think it was not my aspiration at all to become the general counsel or the chief legal officer of, of Nokia. You know, in, in many ways, it's, it was sort of hard work on luck, good old fashioned, you know, yep. sort of values and having amazing an amazing culture that supported me throughout
0: you know that you talk about having a you know the sponsor somebody believing in you you not feeling necessarily ready for the opportunities it's funny i had a conversation with someone who called me just yesterday as I was on my walk and someone that i've worked with for many years in my past law firm days and she was provided with a, an amazing opportunity okay but had asked me whether she, in fact, effectively convinced herself she wasn't ready yet. Two things I said. One, opportunities don't always rise and timing is never perfect. And that notion of not being ready, I'd rather the opportunity and not be ready than ready and the opportunity not necessarily rise. So I think it's a really fantastic lesson. It is. Particularly for those of us who question you know whether we're up for it to me it's always if they're the opportunities there you know with the right values motivation all of that you, you'll, you'll make yourself ready
1: well and i do think you know this sort of it's sort of nascent to some to some extent for, for lawyers generally but also for, for especially for women lawyers i would say yep. fear of Failure, yep. and, and I think that holds us back. So that we need everything to be just right, so that we can hit it right. And, and part of that goes into our training, right? I mean, there's consequences to not getting it right. Yeah, we can't beat ourselves up too badly on that. But I think you have to bifurcate the legal work from the career progression, and you have to be willing to fail. And yep. I could spend this whole interview telling you how many times I've failed, because actually those are the most valuable career experience. Yeah
0: I agree entirely and, and how is that I mean that experience clearly sounds like it's been pretty formative for you how is that kind of translated I suppose into the team you know the team that you deal with now at PayPal the kind of values you try and uh, you know distribute amongst the team tell me a little bit about that.
1: Well you know one of the great things about being in the in the Nokia environment was you really were treated with equal funding and yep. With, with the business teams, you were, you were in the trenches, you were part of that, you know, sort of highs and lows. And it was just exhilarating. And I think when you've experienced that, you never want to lose that. Yeah. And I think I did my best work because I had my finger on the pulse of everything that was happening. And I was valued and appreciated not just for my legal expertise, but for everything I was able to synthesize given the way I look at the world compared to way, you know, somebody who has a sales background looks at the world. And, and that blend of those insights was, was always to the benefit of the company. And I think once you've seen that you know, that really then starts to build your kind of, who are you as a leader? Who are you as somebody who is going to lead? in? And I don't just mean people manager, but lead in any situations. And I think up until that point, I had you know, it it had been about shining the spotlight on me, right? I was in there. I was the deal lead. I was doing the transactions. I was getting all of the accolades and the success, and it felt great. And then you sort of pivot to sort of people saying, well, okay, so now you're advancing. Now you've got all these people you're responsible for. And suddenly, you've got to move that spotlight to them and move it away from yourself. And that's an adjustment. But I think being in a culture that allowed me to sort of, you know, see role models for that type of behavior I think allowed me to accelerate. So I would say I got to learn how to be a leader during that time. And so then when I decided to step down at Nokia after we sold the handset business to Microsoft, I took a year off right. and my daughter was just just two at the time and I hadn't taken any maternity leave. And so I took a year and part of that taking of the year, one of my mentors was the chairman of the board, uh, Rista Salisma, an incredible man. And we had been in the trenches together on the Microsoft deal. And so we'd, we we had really got to know each other, I think, really well and as I was thinking about what I would do next I would you know I would check in with him and one of my biggest concerns at moving into another company especially an American-based company having come from a European a very you know heart and soul of the country company was a was I a one-trick pony like could I do it again was that a you know a bubble and two how do how do i ensure that i'm that this culture it can be replicated and he said to me he said go find a company where you can go in at the leadership level and help influence the culture and i thought wow really Does somebody want that from a lawyer yeah. and so that sort of became one of my sort of focal points when i was you know a lot of things comes your way uh, and when you're when you're interviewing and you're looking around, but that was a great way to filter where I went yep. and if you had asked me at the beginning of the year, guess what you're going to end up in a financial services fintech company, I would have laughed at you right because that was not my background, that was not my aspiration at the time and then I then I meet the CEO of PayPal, and you know PayPal's still part of eBay at this point. we haven't fully spun off. And he gives me his vision of what he wants the company to be. And he asks me to come and help him build it. And I was like, wow, this is just, you know, this is serendipity. Because that was what my mentor told me. You know, that's what he said to do. And so I was able to, to come in at an early stage and help with, you know, recruiting some of the folks who weren't there. We didn't have a CFO. We didn't have a head of HR. And so, and then be part of not, sort of stuck in my own box, but be part of, you know, being an athlete leader in, in a company that I've been able to help, you know, shape and define part of its culture, and hopefully part of the legacy, you know, that would continue long after I leave. And so I think, you know, that was sort of, you know, my, I would say, sort of transition to a different both company, industry, and, and culture, but yet not lose what I had that had made me successful. But it also had made me value why you come to work every day and take that with me. And you know, look, I had to rebuild the legal team at PayPal. You know, they weren't they weren't operating the way that I had been used to operating as as a, as a lawyer. That was just, you know, that's exciting. That's that that's that's the fun part of the role.
0: Give me a sense of the or what the team was like in terms of size, at least at that time. Yes, and perhaps a little bit organisationally. And, and, and now, love to hear about the contrast there.
1: Well, it was, it was it's sort of an interesting contrast because PayPal had been a subsidiary of eBay, and so when these right. two companies split. The public company elements of eBay stayed with eBay, and so suddenly, overnight, you were IPOing basically, and so we had to rebuild, you know, everything <laughs> from a, you know, being a, literally going from a subsidiary to an overnight public company, and so, you know, that, you know, was a little bit of a sort of a shock to the system in many ways, but but we were able. To, so the team, I want to say, and I don't remember the exact numbers, but I, I imagine it was probably about 150 people, yep. and the team. You know, the way PayPal had run was quite sort of self-sufficient to eBay for the most part, but it had been operating as a legal team supporting a subsidiary, right, and not a legal team supporting a public company. And so, you know, they just were, you know, I would say much more sort of focused on the sort of the, the issue at hand versus really thinking about the enterprise as a whole, right? And so I think those changes, we had to, you know, it comes with a combination of how do you retrain people, which is always my bias, right? Is someone willing and agile to be retrained? And then populating that with skills that are missing. And there were obviously a lot of skills that were missing. And so we set about that journey, but in a very thoughtful way. And, you know, I think the team is about, i I want to say about 250 people now and it's global and we don't operate in silos which is how it was running you know the teams were set up really I think in many ways just to provide kind of risk assessment advice versus sort of actually being tasked with being solution providers you know it's the old saying it's easy to say no it's much harder to say how do you fix it right and so and so it was a lot of that was cultural and we had to reshape that and then tying that in to the mission we were creating at PayPal, which was democratizing financial services. And to do that, that requires you to think about communities. It requires you to think about what are you giving back to those communities. So, you know, one of the first things I did with with the help of some of my teammates was establish a pro bono legal program, which to this day is actually one of the key tenants in our ESG public reporting because our lawyers do so much pro bono work now. And when I got there, we did none. (laughs) It was zero. And I think it's, it's something that I think most of the legal team are so proud of because, and even when they leave, like I saw on LinkedIn last night, one of our former lawyers took on an immigration case for a young girl while she was at PayPal in our pro bono program. And after she left, she kept it with her. And after five years, she was able to get this young girl's green card. Wow! And I think those those things are life changing for people yeah. when those happen. So, so it's a sort of a you know that what it is now to what it was then, I mean, it's unrecognizable.
0: And tell me, so t- two things I'd love to do a bit more of a deeper dive on: one, people when you're recruiting people and a team, what are the attributes? Louise, that you are looking for, other than the obvious thing, a particular skill set, what are you looking for to build a great team around you?
1: Yes. So, I, and I do a lot of recruitment in many different ways. And, you know, I think one of the first things I look for, especially in an industry like ours, is innovation and resilience. Yep. And actually, those two actually, we strangely, go hand in hand yep. in my book because it, it's a very fast and intense pace. Yep. Right and if you look at the science then you know the the ability for people to be innovative when they're stressed goes down right and you you kind of you kind of get risk averse and and it's not that I want particularly risk forward people either right I want people who have got great judgment who can think you know kind of very creatively in the moment because the reality is we don't have a lot of time we work at a lightning pace here and i've worked in tech my whole life and paypal is something else for me <laughs> and so you really need that sort of you know seasoned kind of someone who can hone in but is thorough and thoughtful and i think those are important and then you know, then who are they as a person is equally important because for PayPal, it really is more than just doing legal work or doing the job. It really is about the mission. And I say this having, you know, managed the HR function for four years now, you know, one of the things that never ceases to amaze me is our employee engagement scores. And we specifically ask people, you know, how their work connects to the mission of the company. And we, we score off the charts in that metric every year. And I think... If you don't really have that sense of purpose or you don't really connect to that sense of purpose or why you might want to be part of, I think, this environment, then you're not likely to do your best work here. And I have no issues. I think we're not meant to all be on the same path, right? I feel like, you know, it's somewhat sort of, you know, it's it's somewhat, you know, the moon and the stars align sometimes. And if this is not your path, I am okay with that and hopefully we'll stay connected but I'm very transparent with people when I interview them so much so they often say well we thought you were kind of maybe just overplaying it but now we realize you weren't because I actually feel that that level of transparency allows people to hit the ground I think a lot softer and so I put a lot of time and thought into every recruitment that I do because I've seen amazing people suffer organ rejection and they were talented they were skillful they didn't understand you know what was expected of them when they came in and their expectations were misaligned with ours and it's you know it's 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 very traumatic when something something like that happens to you in your career and i feel as a as a hire of talent we have a responsibility that should be our biggest responsibility is to make sure that we are matching the yeah. right people our environments yeah. and then that they become additive to our environment and not that they have to change who they are to fit in our environment yeah. because that just never works
0: So that's really interesting. So key takeaways for me, they're being really transparent about the mission and making sure there's an alignment. And I take it, Louise, really passion about the alignment because you've got people passionate about what they're doing and and believing in what the organizational goals are. Then you can go to the moon. Then there's nothing that stops you. I love the way you linked to innovation and resilience. I think you're absolutely right. Because the way I see that, I suppose, is the innovation bit necessarily means that you stumble along the way. You have to because you can't innovate without doing so. And that's where the resilient bit comes in. If you do and you will stumble along the way to be able to dust yourself off, get back up and be unfazed about it. I love the linking of those two, innovation resilience. I think you're absolutely spot on there.
1: Yeah. And, and there's ways to find people. In, in experiences that demonstrate that, and you're not going to have that in every aspect of your career. If you're a new lawyer, you likely don't have a lot of, of those course. experiences, but you likely have life experiences yep. that you can build on. And I think that's what I look for because you know I you know I don't have you know I didn't get to where I am because you know I had people getting me into you know Ivy League schools. Yep. Right? that's not. And in the end, that doesn't matter. Right, because what businesses and companies value is performance. And so, how do we encourage the the folks coming into the profession to really over rotate on those skills, which are not really taught at law school? Let's be honest. And so, how do we get those experiences along the way? Because, quite honestly, you know, I'm you know a girl from Northern England, working class background, who broke through all of the odds. But I'm nothing special. I just work really hard and, and I leverage what I can. And that that's what I tell people is you can do that too. There is, If that's what you want, then pick a path and figure out how to get there. And so, you know, I, do, I think so much of who I am and, and how I've been successful is because I, you know and to a fault sometimes I, I look at situations and I try and solve every situation and sometimes my team members come to me and they're like Louise stop I <laughs> just want to tell you about the problem we don't want you to solve it all the time <laughs> uh, so it's hard to switch off to right yep. but I do think that you know you know it, it really is about it's great and resilience and, and hard work.
0: Tell me about the operational side of the building and the running of the legal department and 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 how certainly at paypal how that's changed over since you started and the position now what was your focus operationally and what kind of steps did you put in place to to you know some gcs talk about making it run like a business others don't actually really like that term. T- tell me on the operational side, what, what what are some things that you focus on?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, you know, I think one of the things that I find really important for, for for running any any legal function, and I think it should be a responsibility that starts much earlier than when you actually are running the legal function, yep. is understanding the, the financials.
0: Yep.
1: Because, if you understand the company's financials and i don't just mean you know can you read the balance sheet because we all learned how to do that i mean actually understand what are the triggers and i got to learn that very harshly i would say as we would as our business was declining when i was in Nokia mm-hmm. and our numbers were going down every quarter and i realized that i had assets like my ip portfolio that could help drive cash flow for the company, which in some months and some quarters saved the company from, (laughs) from, from a very bad situation. And so if you understand what those levers are and how those triggers interconnect then as you think about providing a service, because that's ultimately what we're doing, then there's a responsibility that goes with how that function runs. And and it also is a an ability then for you to plan, because I think one of the things that I've learned over the years that drives CFOs crazy is when people come up and say, hey, you know, we're starting this new initiative and now we need five more lawyers. Yep. And they're like, you know, that wasn't in the budget, right? Yep. So... It's understanding the financials, understanding the strategy of the company, and then sort of preempting what those needs will be. And you're never going to get it all right. But in terms of the resourcing model and the outside counsel model, yep. how those interconnect, you know, should be at least 70% science, right? Yep. The other 30% will be things, you know, you unless you have predict. a big, yep. company right? Yep. So you've got to build that model around more accuracy than not, right? So it's not going to be okay if it's, it's 50-50. Yep. You want to strive for greater than that. And yep. I think when you do that, you build credibility, Yep. And I think that's actually, in running a legal function, very critical.
0: I take it you mean their credibility internally. So, for example, yep. you're not going to the CFO and saying, yep. well, I need an extra X million because we hadn't planned. Is that the kind of credibility you're talking about?
1: That's exactly right. right. And credibility that when you ask, they know you need it, yes. right? It's not that, you know, you just sort of were asleep at the wheel and you yep. missed it. And so, yep. So I think there's that. And then I think in today's world, It's the use of data is the other, I think, big evolving area for legal, because I think how we use our data, the insights that data provides can be so valuable to the business, but what often happens is people are sitting on that data um, and not really leveraging that. So, you know, what types of litigation cases are you having? Yes, we all gather that information, but actually, if I look at a segment of the business, like customer service, like what are the trends? What am I seeing? And is there a correlation? Is there an interconnection? And so yep. using that data and having people on the team that know how to use that data. And yep. So, you know, we're moving more, obviously, as many are into machine learning and AI capabilities and how that can, you know, do some of the, I would say, the more routine tasks yep. and, and save the sexy, most exciting work for, for, for the in-house legal team. And not find yourself outsourcing that because you're sort of bogged down with the the more routine work, and I think that's the optimum balance that you know from an operational yep. running of a function that I'm striving
0: for. Yeah, yeah. And one of the one of the reasons or one of the factors which contributes to engagement, certainly in, in the legal team, is getting that routine work automated somehow and leaving the high value work that's why that's why we all went to law school (laughs) to be valued and to be you know working on complex problems and having the routine stuff automated away. Now Louise, when I look at, so stepping back a little bit or beyond legal, when I look at the responsibilities you have, and I'm just reading them out, your official title, Chief Business Affairs and CLO, Responsibility for People, we've talked a bit about that, Communications, Government Relations, and Social Innovation Functions. Now, my head's spinning just thinking about... Wayne, you. (laughs) So I'd love to get a sense of really how you manage responsibility for all of those functions, and and maybe a couple of highlights, maybe some favourites or some hardest features of doing so. Let's start high level first. The how. Yeah. Tell me about the how.
1: Yes. Well, look, it's not it's it's not as if I just woke up one day and then all of these functions appeared. Right. Yeah. I have. A- I have an incredible CEO who believes in stretching people and, you know, that's not unique to me. And and he sees his leadership as as truly athletes that should be able to turn their hands to most things. And so, you know, I think sometimes it's a little bit of a test (laughs) to see who can persevere. And so, you know, for me, it started in 2016. Remember, I joined in 2015. And in 2016, Dan asked me to take on uh, the corporate affairs function, which is obviously much more of a nexus in many situations, you know, that's already part of you know, legal government relations. Because I think the social innovation piece was was really interesting and new for me because that really is our sort of social arm for the company. That includes our non profit that we have, um, PayPal giving. And so that was, you know, that's been really a wonderful and, and I think aligning alignment for my values. So it's it's so much easier to take on things if you're passionate about them yep. to begin with. And then in 2017, the HR function came my way and I was truly you know, a deer in the headlights when that came my way. And of course, my first reaction was just to not, was to just put somebody in that role and, and just have them report to me. And I did that for a while, but I was really kicking the can down the road because right. actually HR had really not evolved since it, it had a spin out from eBay. And, you know, I think one of the things we, you, we know about ourselves is what we like and what we don't like. And one of the things I've always loved about being a lawyer is I love to come in and fix things that are broken, as long as it's not my mess. I, yeah. I like that. mess, But I I, have no, I have no judgment. I don't mind. Yep. Like I just I loved I, I don't like maintenance and I don't like routine. But I like to, th- you know, fix things that aren't maybe working as optimally. And so was sort of I had a sort of an epiphany at the end of 2018. I just said, I just need to I need to do what I love doing and get stuck in. And so I started on a HR transformation in 2019, and then of course you know the end of (laughs) the pandemic happened, and so you know it. it, You know what a time to be running a HR function. In a way, it was good because nobody had a clue what was how to do it, and so I was I was on you know equal footing with everybody else in the industry at that point. And so I would say for me, it's been a combination of knowing when to dig in, and I fumbled through that process as I just described. And, and having incredible leaders and that goes all the way back to my Nokia time is, you know, that's what I learned. That's where I found my grounding, you know, and it's not that you be hands off with those leaders, but it really is this sort of servant leadership model. You put somebody who's really talented, most likely more talented than you into those roles and then you bring a perspective that they don't have if you're not that subject matter expert. And that's what I've had. I've had the same leader running the corporate affairs function since we started in 2016 together, you know, and it's sort of evolved from there. So for me, it's 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 less about sort of being a superhero and trying to do everything because I for sure would fail at that. It is more about enabling and not being too distant. And that has, you know, that has challenges because at times, you know, right now I have 15 direct reports and that's too many. So I'm definitely yeah. looking to, to sort of, you know, optimize because I spend probably too much time in, in and then it, from the receiver's perspective, probably not enough time, you know, with, with, yep. and so, you know, so it's a constant evolution for me um, around what, what that scope is and, and how to manage it.
0: Yep. And tell me, what do you think uh, other than the balancing, Amongst you know all the functions, what is the hardest thing to deliver on, given your responsibility? Is it success across a level of success across them all? Is it um, something specific in relation to you know the the people or the government relations? What's the stuff that kind of keeps you up a little bit, saying I'm not sure if I'm quite nailing it or if I'm giving out enough time to this?
1: You know, I think well, so. A couple of things, you know, one of the things that you sort of almost have to some extent is right when you're a lawyer is that the people likely on the other side of the table don't have that expertise. Yep. So there's a credibility when you get there. In these other functions that doesn't necessarily exist right and I would say even more so in HR because everybody has a taste of HR in some capacity and so we're all experts at HR on some level and so everybody's got an opinion about how something should or shouldn't be and I think I've found that you know actually quite anthropologically fascinating to see that it is it's a sort of an evolving area so for So for me, it's been more, I think, navigating and kind of corralling expectations and then creating a way to sort of synthesize those so that they can be executable and then letting people know when you can't deliver on that. Well, that's a very different skill set. It's not like we can get up and, and, and say, you know, well, we don't really have time to do that illegal analysis on that new product you're launching, right? That's yep. not optional, right? Yep. But in some of these other functions, you have to because yep. just you'd boil the ocean, there'd be too much stuff. And so I found that, you know, it's sort of stretched me as a leader because it's a you know, sort of I sort of have enjoyed, I guess, in many ways the the right and privilege of my role as being a lawyer with with very few people in the company having that expertise. I think the other piece I always struggle with is, you know, not to get complacent with legal because I know it so well, and not, yep. and I know these other areas less well. So yep. there's a there's a there's there's always a risk that I over rotate and and under rotate, and and I've been sensitive to that issue, and it certainly occurred. and And I think, you know, I'm you know intentionally spending more and more time actually in that area because as we grow in size and scale and regulation, you know, continues to evolve, this, this area doesn't stand still. It really does require a, a, a lot more kind of shepherding and governance yep. that I, you know, I find that I need to spend now more time in those areas. But it that's the balance that is sort of almost, I wouldn't even say daily, hourly.
0: Yeah. A little bit about the impact of COVID and what you kind of double down on and focused on yeah. you know given the challenges for, for everyone what 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 did you find so perhaps in the early days and i don't know whether it changed as time went on but i'd love to get your thoughts on that
1: yeah it, it's sort of interesting because you know part of what we were doing and this was sort of the tone set by our ceo because we have so much data as a company on, you know, what affects yeah. people's lives and how much savings people have in different parts of the world and things like that. What we learned a couple of years ago was our own employees actually, and certainly in our call centers, were struggling financially and. You know, and we had a mission yep. of democratizing and financial service. And we actually embarked before COVID hit, thankfully, on a financial wellness program that my team drove for our employees who were perhaps the most impacted. And it, it was a combination of, of activities that we did, which started with a, with a relief fund that my team put together in less than three months to allow people to actually, if they had a crisis, to apply to this fund just right. get the funds. But no questions, you know, yep. obviously questions asked, but no need to repay it, yep. right? And yep. so we were able to set that up and that fund still exists. And then on top of that, as we kept thinking about this more and more, we realized that, you know, in certain parts of the world, the benefits weren't were too expensive. They weren't right. And so as we, you know, start to humanize, our employees' experiences. It's not a one-size-fits-all. And then we decided ultimately right before COVID really hit that we were we were giving equity to every employee. And that allowed employees to really then be invested in the company's success, but also an opportunity for savings in a way they could probably not have imagined. Wow. And so, and so that stability was then created, at the, you know, unbeknownst to us, right at the beginning of COVID. And so... And then when we get into COVID, you know, there's, there's sort of you know just tons of uncertainty, right? So, you know, we're all in denial about offices closing, and I think this goes back to my innovation points. I I, I remember having a conversation as we were trying to get everybody you know, home and still stand up our call centers, you know, we just didn't have enough laptops and laptops were in short supply. And I remember saying to somebody at one point, I know this sounds crazy, but like, how hard would it be if we let people just take their desktops home? And and somebody said, well, it's maybe not that crazy. And that's ultimately what we did for a lot of our call center uh, folks. And so that sort of kind of creates some, you know, Intensity, because nobody has a clue what's going on at this point in the early parts of COVID. And then actually, interestingly, for PayPal is people are home and not able to go out. They're shopping online. And so we start to see, you know, an opportunity with the digitization of, you know, people's lives. And, you know, certainly got a, you know, a, a tailwind with that. But, you know, not to be sort of, you know, focused just on ourselves. It created an opportunity for us through the, the George Floyd social justice movement to create a fund that really 535 million to, to, to really invest back into black and minority communities. And then it also allowed us to, you know, do things that, you know, we hadn't really done before around checking in on our employees every two weeks, sending out surveys, you know, using the data, getting their feedback, and it resulted in a real awareness around mental health, which yep. isn't really that well talked about in in the corporate world, right? And so we've brought in, you know, a, a mental health expert into our organization, and now we're having safe space conversations. We really sort of, you know, helped our small businesses. When our employees see that they can be innovative, that they can say, hey, we see this as, this person over is struggling, Is there anything we can do to help? It's just so inspiring. And so we give everyone permission to sort of be their their sort of best version of themselves in this crisis. And our employees source living our values. So those are just a couple of the examples, but there were tons. And, you know, innovation sparks innovation. We were able to bring to life programs like the PPP program in the U.S., which is the Small Business Administration lending, which was something we could never have imagined doing before covid And they did it in like no time at all. So throughout the year, you know, we pulsed our employees, we checked in on them and because there was no playbook, we figured it out as we went and we asked everybody for help and input, which has always been a trait that I sort of think somebody knows a good idea somewhere, so you should go ask for it. And we sitting at the top of the house actually know probably less of those good ideas. And so how do you leverage that? And we found that through the surveys while you get severe fatigue after a while, we got some incredible insights. And then we acted on them really quickly. And it's still going on right now in India. We're still dealing with the travesty of this virus, right, And in Brazil. And so, you know, we're coming up with really creative solutions, getting oximeters to employees, you know, helping their families, you know, providing, you know, support and resources. We've introduced wellness days because... One thing we know for sure is sitting on video conferences for 10 hours a day. It's not healthy. So,
0: it?
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. it's so, <laughs> so every six weeks, we have the whole company take the day off because there's no point just you taking a day off because the work just piles up, yep. right? But we learned if we all took one day off, then we could actually all unplug and then come back and feel energized and that not that there was a tsunami about to hit us. And so those things yep. have been so so appreciated and valued through through our through journey in this COVID pandemic.
0: Well, it certainly sounds like you absolutely double down on, certainly on the wellness side and making sure it's taking care of people. I love the idea of equity to everyone and people feeling really invested. So that's a fantastic initiative. I was going to touch on, and you've certainly already touched on, I know you're very passionate around diversity, inclusion, equity, and we've talked about some of the initiatives. Is there, is there anything that you haven't touched on around DNA? An equity that that you'd like to shout out?
1: Oh my gosh, yes, and so many things. But I, I will I will be conscious of time here. You know, I think one of the things that I think about. You know, I've been at PayPal six years, and you sort of, you know, not to kind of get sort of you know fatalistic in any way. But one of the things that I think about is, you know, it shouldn't take a passionate few individuals to continue mission right no. what I strive for is that I'm an ambassador for DNI and that those things will outlive me or my CEO and that those things continue and we should be at you know 50 50 or you know higher in terms of diversity because what we have learned without any question of doubt is that our products our services our capabilities our team spirit is significantly better when we have diverse teams. And I don't just mean, you know, only ethnic gender. I mean, people who come from different socioeconomic backgrounds, who've lived different life experiences, that's what makes our products stronger and that they're, they're not homogeneous because we as people are not homogeneous. And so I think, you know, those benefits of d when people really grasp what they can bring, it almost becomes like a no-brainer. Like, yep. why don't you have it, right? And then why will it not self-sustain? And I think that's the goal for me.
0: Louise, a question that I love to wrap up with. Advice that you would give to your 25-year-old self.
1: Yeah, I think it's not having a fear of failing. Yep. I think that would be my biggest advice for myself. You know, it's not like my career has gone terrible, but I do think that I've stressed myself out over the years because... I was worried that something wouldn't go right, or even when it doesn't go right, what the consequences would be. And actually, I would argue that's probably my strongest superpower now. And when I meet with, you know, CEO, when I meet with other executives, they're the most interested in those stories or those experiences, because it's going to happen to all of us at some point. So don't fear that, you know, be sensible about it, but don't fear it.
0: Yeah, it's funny, I don't I haven't heard too many people say to me, all that time I spent worrying in the past, that was time well spent.
1: You, know, <laughs> you, you usually
0: don't hear that. So. No,
1: and it, it's toxic as well, right? From a mental health perspective. Yeah, of course. So, you know, and back to my innovation analogy, if you're healthy, you're going to be creative. And so. bounce
0: back. Yeah. Louise, it's been sensational having you on it's a fantastic story and a fantastic journey and you've really hit it out of the ballpark so well done to you and thank you so much for joining me thanks jim bye-bye thank you listeners for tuning into the show for more please subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player if you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show please connect with me jim the host of the show via email jim at pursuit p-e-r-s-u-i-t dot com we'd love to hear from you